You're listening to a Sin podcast. You can listen to this show live by tuning your radio to 90.7 or online at sin.org.au. Due to some confusing, boring legal stuff, Sin can't podcast any of the knee-slapping tracks that are played on air. To dance along with us in the studio, you'll need to listen live. Tune your radio dial to 90.7 or stream it online at sin.org.au. We at Represent would like to acknowledge and pay our respects to the traditional owners of the land on which Sin operates, the Wundri people of the Kulin Nation. Sin Media respectfully acknowledges their ancestors and elders, past, present and emerging. We would also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the, and their ancestors of the lands and waters across Australia where our content reaches. Sovereignty has never been ceded, it always was and always will be, Aboriginal land. Kids should go to school. That's what we're committed to. I haven't flip flopped. I said no originally, then I said yes, then I have said no, and I've stuck to it. I didn't need to do this. I've already done a lot of war for the election. The English fought a civil war over this matter. Over this matter. Don't deal with the nuance of the Canberra bubble. What we want is more learning in schools and less activism in schools. Issues that perhaps may be controversial today, but 30 years from now, your children, your grandchildren are going to be thankful that you stood up for what it was right. Represent. 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 You're listening to Represent. You're listening to Represent in a very big episode today, but firstly, it's lovely to be joined by Bridie Golding, Mimi Hoffman, and the special guest in the room right now, Dr. Matthew Buck. How are you today? Very well, thanks. Great to join you. Glad to have you here. How are you guys today? Yeah, yeah we're good. Doing well. We're excited to be here. Yeah. Bridie's just finished her schooling, not yes. exams yet. But no, not exams, but no, it's good to be done. I have lots of free time now that I should could be using to study, but... You know, maybe Alas. not so much. <laughs> I am glad you know where your priorities are Thanks. with the community radio. But exactly. as I mentioned before, joining us today is Dr. Matthew Buck, who is a Liberal member for Parliament in the Legislative Council representing the Eastern Metropolitan Region. He's the Shadow Minister for Transport, Infrastructure, Child Protection and Youth Justice and for Youth Affairs. Um, that's quite a bit of a resume you've got there, but um, we're glad to get kind of a range of things from your perspective. Um, I'm sure it's a really busy time for you right now coming up to the state election so um yeah first and foremost just introduce yourself and tell us a bit about maybe your policies and the things you identify with the most sure thanks you're right it is a busy time but i think especially in the lead up to the election probably at any time there are a few things that are that are more important than sort of engaging in a grassroots way and and obviously you know this is an amazing station has a, has a long history entirely youth-led youth run which is which is incredible and i've felt for a, a long time now certainly through the period of the pandemic that we politicians have done so badly to engage with young people listen to young people uh, we we saw a major report just yesterday tabled regarding the country's COVID response, also touched on some of the specific elements of Victoria's COVID response, and I was really pleased that um, Isabel Marshall is her name, last year's Young Australian of the Year, was on that review talking about some of the ways that our responses hit young people, 
So I think now more than ever, it's so important in the lead up to the election to, to really engage with young people, really listen, because I think for us as politicians, it, it's very easy, quite frankly, to block out the voices of, of young people and play to other constituencies. Now, hopefully, hopefully, I don't find myself falling into that trap, largely because um, I've only been in Parliament for a couple of years. I came in actually in March 2020, just before the pandemic hit. Uh, and before that time, I was a school teacher. And I'd been a school teacher for many years in the UK and, and here. So I, I bring, with that background, such a positive view of the capacity of young people. I think young people get a dreadful rap, don't you think? Uh, so oftentimes <laughs> in, the, in the media. Um, and yet, with my experience, I can see a, a amazing potential and creativity that if we in politics only tapped into... Well, then on a whole range of fronts, some of which I'm sure we'll talk about today, well, we could all do so much better. Yeah, great. That's a very good answer. Mimi, did you want to start us off? Yeah, let's stay on that topic of young people. Um, as the Shadow Minister for Youth Affairs, um, can we talk about some of the issues that face young people, mental health, mm -hmm. cost of living, climate change? How will yourself and the Liberal parties get these young voters on your side? I recently had a great discussion with... Um, a group of young people from the western suburbs in particular, um, a part of our state that I think has been neglected by all political parties for so long, um, and, and forced, first and foremost they pushed to me that better mental health support, um, mental health support that was culturally appropriate, um, many of these young people came from multicultural backgrounds, was so important. So we've got a range of policies that are out in the marketplace already, um, seeking to prioritise mental health. A again, coming back to that report, criticising Victoria's COVID response that, that we saw just yesterday, the impact of our lockdowns, but in particular our statewide school closures and also the closure of university campuses, um, that had a huge impact on, on mental health. So um, one of the things we're trying to do with young people is to unlock 2,000 more mental health practitioners to go out into schools. I think that's important. Um, we've made significant announcements about greater health funding and in particular the building of more hospitals but that involves uh, a greater provision for, for mental health services as well. So my, my hope, Mimi, is that as we talk more about these sorts of issues, mental health in particular, and engage more with young people as I've been trying to, to do and put forward policies that hopefully young people can see is, is based on their direct feedback, we'll, we'll be able to do better then um, as a corollary um, to, to seek to win the support of more young people. Great, that's great to hear. All right, that's so funny that you've run up the western suburbs because we've been talking about that like every week <laughs> yeah, for a month. It's our favourite suburb. Well, suburb anyway. of West Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, my question is not about the western suburbs, but um, I noticed that one station in the suburban rail loop, which the Liberals have promised to shelve, um, will be built at Monash University in Clayton, which is surely a benefit to making one of Victoria's top universities more accessible for students from all over Melbourne and all over the state. So as Shadow Youth Affairs and Transport Infrastructure Minister, what do you propose instead to increase access to Monash because it is a long way out of town? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. And currently the transport links to Monash are dreadful. Yeah, So agreed. I've been out to Monash. I didn't study at Monash. I studied at Melbourne. But I've been out to Monash recently uh, on a number of occasions and absolutely accept that. The transport links to Monash are dreadful and they need to be better. Now, especially with my transport infrastructure hat on, I'll have more to say about what we can do before the election and what we will do if we're successful in next month's election to deliver 
better public transport out to that campus. I agree that's really important. I'm not convinced, though, that the the, the line from uh, Chelton to Box Hill, the proposed line as part of the suburban rail loop, will deliver the sort of benefit for the university that would be hoped. Someone I certainly listen to is Professor Michael Buxton from here at RMIT. Um, he's a real expert, and he's called the placement of the stations under the suburban rail loop world's worst practice. So I actually think on a whole range of fronts, if the government had listened to Infrastructure Victoria, which was set up by the Labor Party, to be fair, set up by this government, it's a fantastic body, it doesn't recommend the suburban rail loop, or listened to Infrastructure Australia that Mr Albanese, again, to be fair, set up when he was Infrastructure Minister many years ago, We'd be, we'd be doing things differently. But you're right, that that's, it's our key dividing line. It's probably the key dividing line at the election. If, if my side wins at next month's election, we're shelving the suburban rail loop, we're not going to do it. For just two-thirds, it's going to cost $125 billion to construct, just two-thirds. When the minister said before last election it would cost up to $50 billion, I'm sorry, when, as you said, Mimi, so many young people are concerned about uh, the cost of living, the state of our economy, how much debt we're in, buying our first home, to, to spend that sort of astronomical sum of money on a rail line that none of the experts recommend is not something that I could do as the relevant minister. So instead of focusing on this sector, you're rather reprioritising the health system? Yeah. yeah. Um, can you explain to us why that's such a strong focus for you? And... I also kind of wanted to know, is it a bit of a direct response to how the Labor government handled COVID-19? Not so much, to come to your second question first, Mimi. Um, even before COVID hit, we were seeing real stresses and strains in our health system. Uh, we already had a record waiting list, for example, for what's called elective surgery, but it's really vital surgery, things like hip replacements and knee replacements. I think, I think it was... Um, uh, 70,000 before COVID hit, which was a record, and now it's almost 100,000 people on that waiting list. We've all seen the dreadful reports, of course, of ambulance ramping, so people in a health crisis who can't actually get into an emergency department but are stuck in the hospital car park. Um, just over the last couple of days, we've read more in the newspapers about people who've called up triple zero, haven't been able to get through and ultimately have had really dreadful health outcomes. Many have actually died. I do think COVID has made a bad situation worse. But, of course, here in Victoria, we were told that we had to have school closures, university campuses had to be shut down, we had to have the world's longest lockdown to ready our health system. But, but it seems that work hasn't been done. So now you're right. My view is, and the view of my party is, that must be priority one. Mr Andrews says, well, hang on, you can still do the suburban rail loop and put the money into the health system that you need. Respectfully, I would say, when you look at the immense cost of the suburban rail loop, uh, you just can't. You just can't, given that we need in particular to build so many new hospitals around the state, including in the western suburbs, like at Melton. Um, and I've noted some of your recent coverage about the, the, the western suburbs. That region of our state has been neglected by all political parties, for, for so long. So there's a lot of catching up to do. Great. 
Yes, so moving on a bit to the more international kind of point of view. Um, six weeks ago, you wrote to the UN, as we were just talking about before, arguing that our uh, Victoria's justice system, for youths in particular, overuses isolation practices. So what will the Liberals do to fix the, and I quote, very serious breaches of detainees' human rights that are currently occurring? Yeah. I, many years ago, before becoming a school teacher, I worked for a fantastic person, Mary Wooldridge, when she was the Minister for Child Protection and Youth Justice. So I got to learn a bit about our systems then. And then I was thrilled when I came into the Shadow Cabinet, joined our front bench team, to be able to, to move into the youth justice portfolio. But then as I started to talk to people, especially who work in our two youth justice facilities, we've got one at Parkville and one out in the country at, at Malmesbury, I learnt more about the use of arbitrary solitary confinement. So many, many experts in international law say that arbitrary solitary confinement is torture. And yet when I've put questions to the government, ultimately I've learnt that just over the last few months, a three-month period, arbitrary solitary confinement was used in our two youth detention centres on more than 10,000 occasions. So this is ubiquitous in our system. The chief reason, I understand, is because of staffing shortages. And so the way to deal with staffing shortages is to lock these poor kids in their rooms for periods of time until you can get the staff to come on board. Now, to me, that's totally unacceptable. These are the most vulnerable, most traumatised young people in our community. Fine, they're in youth detention because they've committed serious crimes. OK, and first and foremost, the community must be protected. I get that. But here's my point. Every single one of these young people is going to come out into the community. Now, we should care about these young people because none of them are just bad eggs. Every single one has a story of trauma and disadvantage before moving into, into youth justice. But even if the only prism that you look through on this question is one of community safety, you should want to do everything possible to support these young people when they're inside, get them greater provision of mental health support, educational supports because then they're going to they're come out. And all we're doing at the moment is for further brutal, brutalising and traumatising and criminalising these incredibly disadvantaged and vulnerable young people. So we need to have, to come back to your question directly, um, an urgent drive to get more staff into our centres. I've called for an inquiry between WorkSafe and our Children's Commissioner so that, so that there's somebody looking at the, the workforce, and I care about the workforce and making sure they're safe, but there's also somebody there looking after the kids because if I was the minister, it just wouldn't be acceptable to say the answer to low staff numbers is to actually breach international law and state law and lock these kids in their rooms, further exacerbating their ongoing trauma. Yeah, definitely. It's, I guess it's kind of a controversial topic because it's been something that's been in the headlines a little bit in the recent years as well, I think. But um, just digressing our attention a little bit more towards, I guess, the state election and more around the discourse of Victorian politics right now. Um, obviously, Dan Andrews is a big sentiment of everything that's going on, and um, you've spoken a lot about him as well. Recently on the Herald Sun, um, you wrote an article saying how Dan Andrews has kind of divided Victoria from a religious basis. Could you touch on that a little bit more? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, I was out this morning at a mosque in my electorate. Um, I represent an electorate in the east and northeast, and I was in Heidelberg West uh, this morning, where there are lots of folks who originally came out from Somalia 
it's a big Muslim community. Um, in the north and the west in particular, we have a huge and growing and vibrant Indian community. Um, we've got lots of um, Hindus and Sikhs and Jews in Victoria. And my view is that the best thing about our state is that we're such a wonderful multicultural jurisdiction. You look at some of the problems that other countries have had through racial and religious division over recent years, and you'd have to say that Victoria is probably the world's multi multicultural success story. So I was disappointed about some of the comments the Premier recently made, saying that people with orthodox religious views were, I think he said, um, bigoted and hateful. The views he was talking about, about things like same-sex marriage, for example, are not views that I share, but I do think religious freedom's really important. Um, I spoke at that time to Adel Salman, who's the president of the Islamic Council of Victoria, and he told me that many Muslims were troubled by the Premier's comments. Um, LGBTI Victorians have experienced so much discrimination and far more work needs to be done to ensure that they're supported and protected. But I suppose part of what you must do in a diverse multicultural state like Victoria is seek to do that at the same time as seeking to ensure that people from minority faith groups are also supported and included. I don't like the idea and I don't accept the idea that you can only do one or the other. So that's what I meant when I wrote that. Yeah, no worries. Obviously, you've done a lot of articles for like the Herald Sun and all those things. So it's really interesting to see how you kind of bring your perspectives through, I guess, the papers and whatnot. But um, just I kind of want to keep on a little bit about Dan Andrews and I guess just the election as a whole. Is the, I guess, unpopularity of amongst some people of like how COVID was handled and I guess of Dan Andrews in general. Is that something like you think that the Liberal Party has used as a strategy to kind of garner more votes in the upcoming election or is it kind of just let it take care of itself? Well, we haven't really. Look, I think that's a, that's a thing, certainly in different pockets of the state. I was with our candidate in Pakenham yesterday announcing a road upgrade and uh, my brother actually lives in Officer a bit further out and our candidate there was telling me that he feels like uh, there's still uh, a real negativity in that community about what's happened over the last couple of years. I think that sentiment is stronger in different parts of the state. But whether you think it's the right political strategy or not, and I'm not sure, we focused almost entirely on our positive plan looking forward, thinking in particular, as you said before, Mimi, about healthcare first and foremost, but also infrastructure and education and a range of other things. Um, we have said that if we win, we'll have a Royal Commission into our COVID response. And I think the report yesterday from some um, eminent academics and, and former public servants that really criticised Victoria's response provides further evidence as to why that's the right thing to do. Um, but first and foremost, we're looking forward as to how we can fix some of the some of the state's problems. I don't know. I'll be interested to see, to tell you the truth, yep. how that sort of sentiment plays out. I think it will be really patchy. Yep. I think there are some parts of the state where you have a higher proportion of people who don't don't come from the sort of Zoom class like I do, quite frankly. You know, I was locked in my home. My wife's in healthcare. Uh, I, I was a member of parliament at the time. I'd just become a member of parliament. We continued to receive our wages. Yes, of course, there were frustrations, but so many other people were hit so much harder. So I think in parts of the state where you had a, a high proportion of, of tradies, a high proportion of people who didn't work in the public service, who couldn't switch their jobs to Zoom, well, there you had 
far more people who were really angry. Uh, I think a lot of parents with younger kids who spent so much time away from school are far more are far more upset, and that may influence the the way people vote next month. Yeah, no worries, Mammy. Did you have a last question you wanted to add before we let Matthew go? Not that I no, no. not that I'm aware of. <laughs> Um, I might actually butt in. Um, going back to the religious discrimination issue, um, I've read that Matthew Guy is talking about reintroducing a law that effectively allows religious schools to discriminate against um, LGBTQI plus teachers. Um, what do you? What's the liberal position on that? Because I feel like that's been quite underreported. I would just. Can you give us some clarity, basically? Of course, of course. When the particular bill that I think we're talking about, it was an equal opportunity bill, yep. went through Parliament, I was the uh, Shadow Attorney General. So from our side, I um, led that debate. And principally what that bill does is stops faith-based schools from preferencing people of their own faith in matters of employment. And so I'm a school teacher. I was the deputy principal at Ivanhoe Girls before I moved into Parliament. So I'd worked at a Christian school, nominally Christian school, Christian school. Under the law as it stands, an Islamic school would have to consider me at the same level as a practising Muslim, even if I went for a job like the principal of an Islamic school. Now, my view, and I know Matt, Matt Guy's view, is, well, that lacks common sense. You've, you've got to let Islamic schools choose a, choose a Muslim as the principal. You've got to let a Christian school choose a Christian as the principal. So, yes, Matt, I think it was just yesterday or the day before, said that if we win, well, we'll make the changes to that legislation that I said we would seek to make when I led that discussion uh, probably a year ago or so now. So I think, I think there's a real balance here. Um, I noted at that time, there was a discussion about religious freedom in the federal parliament as well, and yes. Tanya Plibersek, um, the Labor shadow minister for education at the time, said uh, religious freedom is a human right. So I think we must find a way forward that always seeks to ensure that there are supports and protections in place, especially for LGBTI students, but also staff, whilst acknowledging that religious schools must have some freedom in hiring people who have views that are in line with, with their faith. And like I say, I actually think there are so many people of, of goodwill willing to work together in our minority religious communities, um, in the LGBTI community. Um, I, I think we can get that. I think we can get that done in a way that gets the balance right and ensures there are strong protections for LGBTI students and staff while also respecting religious freedom. Yeah, no worries. I think we'll got all our questions out of the way, so we we're very grateful for having you on the show today. Obviously, again, such a busy period for you, so we really appreciate the time you take for us. Anytime. Thanks for having me. You are back on Represent on Sin. Um, coming up now, we have another interview, so we're getting a lot of, I guess, discourse within the political arena in Victoria. Um, and coming up now is the member for Caulfield, David Southwick. So I interviewed him the other day, and we'll play it for you right now. David, thank you so much for joining us here on SIN. Um, firstly, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your policies that it, you will be bringing to upcoming re-election of yours. Sure. Thanks, George. So, uh, member for Caulfield, I was elected in 2010. Uh, I previously came from a small business background into politics. 
are very much focused on community and helping community uh, after running uh, and being involved in a lot of not-for-profit organisations, uh, including those helping homeless and long-term unemployed youth. Uh, also, uh, entrepreneurship and social enterprise has always been a really important thing for me, uh, the idea of uh, giving people a hand up, not a handout. Um, so, you know, that that's their ideals that I hold very, um, very dear to me. Um, for me, a lot of the things at the moment, certainly in in uh, I have a small business portfolio and um, and and energy and, and renewables and a number of other things. So, um, for me, both locally and across the state, there, there is the issue of climate and getting um, getting the um, uh, climate change right by at the same time ensuring that we have uh, energy supply and, and affordable energy. So. Uh, some of the things that we are talking about is taking the politics out of climate change by um, legislating uh, 20, 30, 50% uh, reduction targets. We think that's really important. Also, we want to restore power back to the people. So uh, we believe particularly in a, uh, in a in a market from energy where you've got uh, uh, powers of power lines and what have you that haven't been connected properly. So we've connected up a whole lot of um, larger uh, renewables, but we don't actually have the highway that connects them back into the grid and back into the home. So one of the immediate things that we could do is in our Power to the People plan is ensuring we have batteries and solar to a million homes and also uh, uh, availability for that for renters as well. So that's important to fix uh, in terms of reliability uh, and, and also from a climate perspective straight away. Uh, hydrogen, so we're backing hydrogen with a, with a billion-dollar plan there. And, um, and also tree canopies as well. So it's kind of a very strong environment push, and that's something that I've been driving as a deputy, but also think in my electorate of Caulfield that's really important. Then, you know, locally there's some other, you know, really key things, including healthcare is a big thing in this election right across the state, but it also is locally as well. So things like Caulfield Hospital. So we've committed to build a new hospital at Caulfield, uh, long overdue, and uh, and and that will take a hundred year old hospital and make it fit for purpose, which we believe it's really important. The Alfred Hospital is in the news at the moment of being not fit for purpose, uh, and Caulfield is one of those campuses which we will fix under us, and something I've advocated strongly for. Open space is a big issue, so locally we've got the lowest amount of open space in any municipality in the state, Glenara, four percent open space. So we want to fix that by activating things like Caulfield Racecourse Reserve and creating uh, both wetlands, parkland and sporting facilities. Uh, that's something that we would do uh, and activate. And then we do things like even um, along train lines, <clears throat> you've got linear potential of linear parks so you could uh, create um, more of opportunity for people to use those effectively unused train lines at the moment um, and, and unlit and in some instances dangerous and actually activate them for um, community hubs for people. So we've got some creative ways of using open space, health um, uh, and uh, and schools. We've got a bit of a plan to commit up uh, in supporting our primary schools, particularly haven't had haven't been funded for quite a while. So we've got a fund to be able to support our primary schools with upgrades. They're kind of the key things that we've been talking about at state level. And then I suppose particularly um, at a local level, along with state level with climate. And then in in um, in the small business space, one of the things that we've already announced is activating our shopping strip precincts. So during COVID, everyone's shopping strip became a community hub. We believe that they need to be upgraded and, and beautified and become more activation pieces. 
So a $30 million fund uh, to actually help with that. And we've announced specifically into areas like Ormond um, and Glen Huntley uh, and into Ripley some additional dollars to be able to activate those hubs. Great. I think um, you spoke a lot about different principles, especially regarding climate change and environmental aspects. Um, just one thing I'd like to touch on quickly with your answer there. Um, you mentioned um, taking the politics out of climate change. Could you just quickly just define what that means? Does that mean a more bipartisan view on things? Or yeah, just- yeah, I think so. I mean, I mean, really, uh, it should be a race to the top in terms of with the ideas of how we how we actually tackle climate change, not not being critical, and I think you know we've been judged um, in terms of how we might have been seen federally in previous times. I think the Victorian Liberals are quite different in terms of our approach to this. A bit along the lines of New South Wales, New South Wales has been very proactive on the kind of climate piece. Uh, at, um, Matt Keane has really led the way on climate targets, and we've been working with Matt Keane in New South Wales to uh, replicate some of that. I think, you know, if you have climate set climate legislative targets, which is what we're proposing, we'd hope Labor would also uh, adopt that, um, then what you would do is provide certainty to the market and you provide people to actually invest in the market. Um, the difference the government's come out today and spoken about government um, owning energy and running energy, we actually want to be able to, we think competition is good and that's where we see the contested ideas different. So how we might get there is different to government. The government are rushing out and turn it pretty much saying, we'll just own everything and run everything. We don't believe that government is very successful in running anything. So how you might get there is different, but we believe, you know, you don't argue about the science, um, just have a, a contested ideas in terms of how you might get there. Yeah, no worries. And I just wanted to go digress our attention a little bit differently. Um, and talk about the rising cost of living. Obviously, it's affecting a lot of people in Australia right now. Inflation rates are soaring. Um, what, if you could briefly describe the Victorian Liberals' policies, one of the key policies towards mitigating the rising cost of living, what would that be? Yeah, look, I think that's really, really important. I mean, some of it is around um, taxation policy. I mean, we've had 42 new taxes and a lot of um, blowout of um, state debt. So that flows on to cost of things because somebody's got to pay and you end up the consumer pays when taxes go up and debt increases, government borrows more. So it's an economic um, problem for state governments to have. So we've got to be, uh, be better at running things, which again is the argument about why would government run anything or own anything when they haven't done a good job of it. Um, but then drilling down, there are some things that where the government does need intervention. One of the things that we've been talking about is around public transport. Public transport is now down to 50% patronage of what it was. So our $2 fares uh, and $1 for concessions um, would be something to be able to bring people onto public transport again, take congestion off the roads, and uh, and the cost saving of that, is I think about around $3,000 3 to $4,000 a year, is a huge saver in terms of cost of living. So it's a good thing in terms of getting public transport used it's a good thing for, for cost of, uh, cost of living exercises. We're going to do some stuff around energy as well, which is important around that because energy is another really big thing. But I think, you know, downward pressure on, on prices by ensuring we've got better taxation reform, uh, um, cutting some of those 42 new taxes that the government have introduced and managing projects better certainly ensures um, a, a, a tackling cost of living pressures that we're currently got at the moment. And, and look, even things like we, we um, announced a fuel app, fuel saver app. So, you know, rather than, than um, the fuel companies not telling the public where the cheapest fuel is, so 
um, our fuel saver app is very similar to what New South Wales does, which is getting them to actually having to report price changes. And then in real time, consumers can judge through technology where the cheapest fuel is to go out there and fill up their car. That's a real cost of living um, uh, saving by having that fuel saver app just by legislative change that exists and has been existing for a number of years in New South Wales that we would do within the first 100 days of government. And just just an overview of your um, politics so far in Victoria. Um, obviously, you've been elected and re-elected in Caulfield for quite some time now. What do you think has personally made you so electable to the people of that electorate? Yeah, so I'm very driven on community. Community is my focus, um, listening to what matters to my, uh, my local constituents and not trying to impose my views on people, but rather, you know, trying to understand what's important to others. And so a community local representative that comes not from, you know, politics and trying to run a political spin or narrative, but, but try and rather to actually represent my local constituents, I think is important. And I think, uh, unfortunately, a, a, a number of other, you know, politicians and politics has become overly political. People don't want just political, you know, um, uh, shouting, ranting things against, you know, different politicians. They just want good ideas and good representation, and that's largely what I've tried to do. Yeah, and just to you know you're obviously a very busy man right now, so I won't keep you for too long, but um, just touching on Australia's reversal um, of recognising West Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, um, I know you've touched on that a little bit um, recently. Yeah. Uh, could you just echo your position there um, and kind of describe to our listeners what you believe is the right path forward, as yeah. long of a question that is? Yeah, look, I mean, just quickly, I, I just think that, you know, um, having another country trying to you know, determine where someone's capital is, I just don't think it's, you know, Australia's, um, why Australia should be um, uh, telling Israel where their capital should be. It would be like someone turning around saying, well, you know, like Canberra shouldn't be Canberra, let's move it to Sydney. And, you know, that being, you know, Israel or the US or someone else saying we don't, we don't accept the fact that Australia has chosen Canberra as their capital. Uh, it's been, it's been the capital of, uh, Jerusalem's been the capital of Israel. Um, you know, since its um, inception, you know, why why should we think any differently? Um, and you know, it's a regressive step. It's it's it, it's something that's been accepted, and you know, the government's trying to kind of wind it back now. And I think it just creates more division. We don't need more division. We've kind of moved forward. I think it's been you know, it's been it, it, Israel and Australia have had a really strong friendship, and the government's kind of tried to do this without any consultation with both the Jewish community or with Israel as well. So it's a, it's a very unusual foreign affairs um, position uh, and it's the biggest, it's the first um, foreign affairs position that the government, Labor government's done um, since they've been elected and it seems, you know, pretty unusual that they'd that kind of, you know, pick on Israel with all the other things that are happening in the world at the moment, that this should be the biggest issue. Uh, right now, where you've got all of these other humanitarian and and um, and, and and issues that are happening, you know, all throughout the world, um, that all of a sudden, you know, let's pick on let's pick on poor little Israel again. Thank you so much for your time, David Southwick. Um, no worries, pleasure. For going for re-election again this state election. Thank you so much. Thanks, George. That was Member for Caulfield, David Southwick. You're back on Represent with Sin now, Mimi. I think there's been a lot of discussions about things that have happened in Victorian politics this week. Yes. Sorry, Australian politics. 
Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Go ahead, Minnie. Um, so, as you sure, I'm sure we've all heard, and actually me and Brady also wanted to just mention before we started that <laughs> about Liz Truss and how... Oh, yes, another Prime Minister down the drain. She has resi- well, resigned. Yes. Yeah, the lettuce lasted longer. Have yeah. you seen that? That's yeah. Funny. Actually, but, my dad sent, sorry, a funny tweet, which was like... Uh, I'll just read it. A flatmate has just asked me whether I think the lettuce voted leaf or romaine in the Brexit referendum. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. But that's actually not what we're going to talk about today. No. Today we are talking about another person who has resigned, Lydia Thorpe, the Greens senator. She resigned yesterday. Um, she was the um, Senate deputy. Um, and she resigned after it was revealed to the ABC that she had had a brief relationship with the ex-president of the Victorian Rebels Outlaw Motorcycle Gang while she was sitting on a parliamentary law enforcement committee. Senator, Senator Thorpe did not disclose the relationship to Greens leader Adam Bant, and Mr Albanese, our Prime Minister, has called on Mr Bant to explain exactly what he and his office knew. At this point in time, Bant remains adamant that he did not know of the relationship until he, until he was conducted by, contacted by the ABC and has said in a press conference that Thorpe's failure to disclose the relationship showed significant lack of judgment. Mr Bant has asked for Thorpe's resignation and she has agreed. However, she will remain a Green Senator. While Mr Bant was unaware of the relationship, it has been reported that Thorpe's staff were aware of the relationship, with one member so alarmed that they took the matter to Mr Bant's chief of staff, Damien Lawson. The anonymous staff member claims that Mr Lawson asked them to not pass the information on to Mr Bant. But Mr Lawson has denied this claim and has said that he was under the impression that the staffer was going to return to Thorpe and explain their joint concerns over the matter. So the anonymous staff member was going to explain her, well, her or him, actually, don't know, her or their, their joint concerns with Mr Lawson over the matter. Thorpe claims that she only briefly dated the ex-president of the Rebels, Dean Martin, in early 2021, and that they are now just friends who share an interest in advocating for First Nations people. The pair met through black activism. However, at the time of dating Mr Martin, Thorpe, as I said, was on a law enforcement committee that was receiving confidential briefings about bikey gangs and organised crime. It is important to note that the ABC and also us are in no way suggesting that Thorpe shared confidential information from committee meetings. There is absolutely no evidence that that has occurred. So I'm in no way trying to lessen the seriousness of this undisclosed relationship, but I wanted to ask whether you guys feel that the media hyper-focuses on female relationships with people that could be considered a conflict of interest. Yeah, look, I definitely think there's a balance. I mean, I think it's kind of quite a weird position to be in um, to have to declare your relationships. Mm. Obviously, I'm not saying there's not a conflict of interest. I definitely think that there is. Yeah. And obviously, as a parliamentarian, I do think you're held to a higher standard and that you should be, you know, considering your actions to a higher standard than maybe the rest of the population. Um, but I do think that um, this is probably being blown out of proportion. I feel like people are quite reasonable in their judgments and there's probably less kind of maybe benefit that would have gained, the bikey people would have gained because of this relationship than a lot of the media is implying Mm. or sort of indirectly implying that there is. 
I also think, if you like, know what I mean. yeah, as, and as I've said, there's literally no evidence. I don't really, it doesn't, the ABC doesn't make it sound like there ever will be. It doesn't really sound like people yeah. are wanting to investigate into, like, no. where the stuff was shared. I Whereas, kind of think it'll be a big thing for, like, two dates and then I think it'll blow yeah. over and no one will. Whereas with Gladys and, you know, even the stuff with Scott Morrison earlier this year with the um, mm. multiple portfolios, there was actual evidence of that. Yes. And a bit like with this, this whole story has not, well, I mean, it's still, the public needs to know about it, but as I've said, there's no evidence, so. Yeah. I do think that the public probably did, or like at least it needed to be recorded somewhere mm. that she'd recognise this. I think it just kind of shows a bit of a lack of judgement, really, on her part. Yeah. I mean, how but, can you be dating an ex-bikey and be on a committee and it not cross your mind that, yeah, hmm, exactly. these two things kind of correlate? Exactly. <laughs> it's a bit bizarre, isn't it? Just the whole fiasco of how people go in and out of Australian politics as well. Like, mm-hmm. you know, after all the things that happened with, like, the, you know, dual citizenships and stuff like that, it's like you can be just out of politics that quickly. Mm, I don't know. You can. I mean, my... yeah, I guess she's, yeah. she's still set it up, but... George, are you going to play The Little Game? The Little Game. We really need a title for it, I think. I think we're at that stage where there needs to be at least a zinger for it or something. Yeah. Some we kind can of... make a little sound effect like our intro, but, you know. You know. Anyway, I'll explain because I have to explain it every week. <laughs> this week, we're going to take a quote from an Australian politician who um, said maybe something a bit... You could say politically incorrect, maybe just a bit obscure, a bit of this, a bit of that. Every week we'll decipher. I will know who said the quote, but you guys won't know who said the quote. And people listening will not know who said the quote, mm-hmm. unless you're some genius at Australian politics. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so today I only have one quote. Normally I have two quotes, one that I made up. But today I've only got one quote, just because of lack of time, I guess. And you guys need to guess at the party and who said it. So, I'll get right into it now. I would walk to the town of in New South Wales, of Burke, backwards, if the gay population of North Queensland is any more than 0.0001%. This person declared this after their half-brother came out as gay a few days later. Oh, my God, this is hard one, actually. It's giving, um... I'm getting confused with... Is it Malcolm Turnbull who has a lesbian sister or something? There's some big politician so. who has a... And who's really against the LGBT community. Maybe Tony... Like, I think it's Tony No, it's Tony Abbott. It's Tony Abbott. Anyway, I was thinking that this is Tony but it probably is. I don't think it is because I don't think Tony Abbott would talk about, like, Burke. I mean, mm. Burke is out in, you know, whoop whoop. Sorry if anyone from Burke is listening. <laughs> yeah, I think like, you're a, a Victorian community radio station has a pretty small Burke. <laughs> I don't know. Some like, kind of is it is Bob Catter a bit like obvious? <laughs> I actually genuinely have no idea. Some like rural New South Wales. Do you want me to say the quote again? Yeah, say the okay. quote again. I would walk to the town of Burke in New South Wales backwards if the gay population of North Queensland is any more than point zero 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 one percent. This person declared after their half brother came out as gay. I just, I laugh every time I say the last bit because yeah. they came out as gay just after. Mm, I feel like I will. The only person I can think of is Bob Catter. Guess we'll just have to go. Oh wait, let's guess the party. Oh yeah. Um, 
that it could be like Michael McCormack or something, like one of the nationals. Yeah, and let's or say Matt it's Canavan. a na- yeah. or he's a senator. Let's say it's in the National Party, though. Yeah. Can is, you give us that? Is it the National Party, George? I can't give you that. No, you can't no, give, you tell us who the party is. No, you've got to tell me the person. Then the yeah, party. but can you tell us the party and then we'll we'll have <laughs> another we'll get the person. Well, if I tell you, okay, the point is, if I tell you the party here, it just gives it away. Oh, is it an independent person? I like, don't know. One person party. Maybe, Maybe it's uh, Clive Palmer okay. or something. Nah, but he said Queensland. Why would he talk about Burke? It's not that far from Queensland. <laughs> I guess so. Let's go with your McCormack guess. Michael McCormack. He's a member for, like, Parks. Well, it's not, like, Parks, but it's in Parks. It's his office. Mm-mm. I actually... I don't know. Oh, Barnaby Joyce. Okay. Barnaby Joyce? Mm. You've got 20 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Barnaby Joyce. Yeah, I reckon... Look. Lock it in, George. <laughs> Quickly go on our Twitter page and tell us what you think as well. <laughs> Send us a DM <laughs> or something. <laughs> Could make it a bit more t- reactive. So, Barnaby Joyce? Yeah, that's our final answer. Mm-hmm. You should have stuck with your guns, Brady. It was Bob Cutter. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> See, if I said who the party, yeah, I would have right, just right. given it away. Bob Cutter. <laughs> but yeah, so, unfortunately, I didn't have a fake one to give you all, but... um. You've done pretty well in the last few weeks, I think. But, I think so. you know, you almost had it this time. But, you know. <laughs> Alas, I think that's all we have time for this week. Obviously, there was so much that happened, but we just couldn't ram it all in one yeah. week of politics. We mm. touched on Liz Truss before as well, and I heard that Boris Johnson might be... Flying put his back ha- from his holiday. <laughs> put his hands up, which again. is absolutely astounding to me. So um, funny. Yeah, I can't believe it. It just kind of screams Eaton boy, you know, mm. like... I can do it. I'm entitled to it. Mm. Do you think that this trust, like the position after Boris Johnson was just completely untenable? I definitely think that's a part of it, but the right person could have made it work, I think. Yep. Mm. But I don't think she was, unfortunately. <laughs> well, there will be an election coming up pretty shortly. I'm not quite sure which month exactly it is in, in England. In England. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But- it's in a week. Oh. They said they were going to do a, re- a re- the ballot, not like the ballot. Re- oh. oh. Not yeah. A- I mean, the Labor Party wants a, another real election. Yeah. Yeah, they said, yeah, they're going to do like a re-thing in a week. I think. They, they, were, they, was, they were calling for that, but mm-hmm. they, it's not like confirmed or anything. Oh, so, right. Alas, we will leave it at that for another week. And as always, remember to stay, stay political. political. You're listening to Sin. You've been listening to a Sin Media podcast where young people run the show. <laughs>